down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you'll never have to pay Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 510 of the Survival Podcast. It is September 14, 2010. It is a Tuesday. And what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about aquaponics. And exactly what is aquaponics? Uh, where did it come from? Why does it exist? Why should you care about it as a prepper? And uh, I think it's a good subject. It's not often that I get to do a show on a subject I've never really covered in depth. I've talked about aquaponics before, but never in depth. And I'm going to do that today. I'll give you a bit about more about why I've never done it in depth uh, once we get done with the housekeeping and I go into the main topic. do want to go ahead and knock out our housekeeping now, though. As always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals, to me, is the source for everything and anything herbal, from herbal preparations that are already put together for you to raw herbs to information about how to make your own herbal preparations. Uh, they are an outstanding sponsor. They've been with us now for over a year. They've made a long-term commitment to the show. They support the Member Support Brigade by giving away their preferred membership. That's cost $50 a year for most people. Anybody that's in the MSB, you guys get that for free. Uh, so that pays for the cost of your MSB alone, and that gives you 25% off everything they sell. And um, their website, I don't know, just to be fair, I mean, their website could use a little bit of coming into the uh, the uh, 2010 era as far as the look and appearance. But if you take a look at their catalog on that site and what's available to you, it's unbelievable. The amount of, of variety that's available to you. Some things that uh, you really can't seem to find anywhere else. So for all your herbal needs, check out Western Botanicals. Next up today is Common Sense Prep. Common Sense Prep is a new company. Um, one of the, the last people to take a few sponsors that, uh, spots that were left and has made it, again, a, another good commitment to the show. And uh, they do support the MSB as well. They give uh, 15% off all their palette and press books. And what does Common Sense Prep provide? Well, it provides all the things for Common Sense Preparation. Check out Common Sense Prep, another great sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Remember to connect with us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Those are the big ones along with the forum. And remember, we have a chat room on the Survival Podcast forum. Occasionally, I uh, I pop in there on an evening. If Dorothy's uh, watching something on TV I'm not really interested in or just uh, otherwise indisposed, I'll usually let people know via Facebook and Twitter that I'm in the chat room. So that's another reason to connect that way. But, hey, don't wait for me in the chat room. Get in there and connect with other people. Uh, we also uh, want to remind you about our special show, Episode 550, is coming up. Don't want to take up too much time in the housekeeping. I'll just say if the Survival Podcast has uh, been an impact on your life, you'd like to share that impact, five, Episode 550, we're 40 away from that, is going to be a special episode. Listen to our one-year anniversary show. I'll put a link in today's show notes to get an idea what that's like. Please call in, leave your two-minute message, and be part of that show. If I have to run that show for an hour and a half, two hours... As many people as call in with something to say, as long as I can hear you and understand you, uh, you're going to be on that show. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the, the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get discounts like the two I mentioned and a bunch of other really great ones, free videos, all kinds of good stuff. And I get a lot of questions. How can I get all the podcasts? How can I get them all? Um, well, you can either take the 50 or 60, whatever it is that are available on iTunes, directly off iTunes with one fail swoop, uh, and then go from everything older than that and individually download them. Or you can join the Members Brigade. You get every episode ever created in convenient zip files uh, in 24-episode lots. So it's up to you how you want to do that. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic. And let's, let's talk about aquaponics today. And let's talk about first why I've never done this show before. I've had a lot of questions about it, a lot of uh, interest in it. Obviously, it's a great topic for the prepper. Um, contrary to what I think some people might believe, 
uh, with as varied as I get with topics here, uh, from investing to gardening to guns to uh, primitive skills to modern technology. I don't really talk about a lot on this show that I've not actually done. Um, when it comes to Q&A, you know, I might talk about it for a, a moment, and I'll usually say, hey, I've not done this, but here's my understanding. But when I talk about most of the practical skills, uh, storing food, um, preserving food, foraging, uh, permaculture, these are all things I have practical hands-on experience with. And I do that for a reason. I think it's, it, it's, it's easy in a show like this for you to start going on and on about things you've not actually done and, and try to create the illusion that you've, you, know, you have. Uh, but I don't think that would last very long because sooner or later you're going to start saying things and people go, that's not the way that works. And I tried that and that failed and, uh, you know, all types of things like that. And obviously you're seen through and you're not authentic. So I always try to be authentic and I always try to talk about things that I've actually done and that I actually have practical experience with. Aquaponics is something that I've been studying and researching heavily for about a year now and planning uh, my own system for when I move. And I've basically been talked out of even a small-scale system by my very intelligent wife who said, Jack, it's one more thing to move, and we have so much stuff to move already, and we have so many things you want to get rid of before we move, just like the chickens. Let's put this one off until we're actually up there, and you can build what you really want. That was a logical statement, so I've staved off even you know, firing up one of my old little fish tanks and building a microsystem, which we'll talk about today. Um She's a smart lady, folks, and I, I do tend to listen to uh, smart people, especially when they're married to me. Um, so I haven't actually done this, but I have a tr done a tremendous amount of research. I've watched several DVDs. I've read a lot of great books, including a great free ebook. Uh, if you're a member, Sport Brigade member, another benefit is one of the free ebooks is Aquaponics: The Synoptoman Way uh, from Keith Cutbert out of South Africa. Uh, that ebook is great. It's available free in the uh, the benefits section of your MSB membership. Um, so some of this comes from that. Uh, Aquaponics Made Easy is probably the best DVD I've watched on the subject from a gentleman in Australia. It seems like the rest of the world is ahead of the United States on this. So there's my disclaimer. Um, I've also gone out and looked at a few different systems and seen how they work and examined them and saw what's working, what's not, watched everything I can, but I haven't done this. So I probably will make mistakes today. For those of you out there that are aquaponics uh, pros, please feel free to point them out. You will not hurt my feelings. But let's start out, first of all, with what is aquaponics. And if we're going to define aquaponics, we really have to define two other things first. And the first one is aquaculture. Um, aquaculture is the process of growing fish or shellfish or any other thing that grows in the water uh, by itself. So if you got a bunch of fish tanks together and put in a great big giant filtration system that was designed to keep that water clean, put a bunch of brook trout in there, started feeding them pellets, and as they became available for harvest, started pulling them out and replacing them with small fish, and just ran your operation that way using commercial filtration systems, that would be aquaculture, growing an, a water-based, a marine-based crop of some sort. You could be doing that with you know, farming mussels if you wanted to, or clams, or shellfish, or crayfish, or, or anything like that. Anything that grows in the water would be aquaponics. Uh, then we look at hydroponics. Hydroponics is growing things that you normally would go grow in the ground, but growing them in some sort of growth medium uh, using water uh, as a nutrient uh, transfer system. So we have a great big bed of stuff, and it's just, let's say, gravel. And uh, we run water through there, and we're growing tomatoes in there. Uh, that would be hydroponics, right? So that's hydroponics. And we would have to then bring nutrients to that system. We would have to use some sort of prepared fertilizer for that hydroponic system. Aquaponics is where we take aquaculture and hydroponics, and we put them together. We get aquaponics. And what we're doing there is we take the water from uh, our marine crop, our, our aquatic crop, our, our, our livestock, so to speak, our, our fish or our mussels, and we run that water, and mussels wouldn't be good for this because they're by nature a filter feeder, uh, but any type of, of organism that produces a, a lot of waste, fish would be the most primary example. And we run that water through the grow bed that we would normally be using for are hydroponics, and the plants take the waste 
and use it as nutrient growth. So the fish provide the nutrient to the plants, and the plants provide the filtration back to the fish. In a perfectly balanced system where everything is functioning the way it's supposed to, this is a perfect system. A lot of times it takes a lot of tweaking and work to get it there, and the smaller the system, sometimes the harder this is to pull off until you get too, too large of a system. But there's kind of a sweet spot in there where once a system's large enough, it becomes easier to balance because a something going haywire with just a little piece of it has a less effect on the larger uh, scope of things. But that's what aquaponics basically is. It's growing both vegetables and some sort of fish product out of a single system where the vegetables are acting as a filtration uh, device for the fish so the fish don't poison themselves with things like ammonia from their urine uh, and, and other substances from their waste. And the plants are able to take these substances uh, with chemical processes that, that, that exist in the system to break them down to usable nutrients. They're taken up by the plants. They're used for growth by the plants. So we don't have to fertilize our plants, and we don't have to filter for our fish. All right. So that's that's what we're talking about today. To understand this, we have to understand some terminology, though. And the next thing is, well, what the hell is this grow bed that you're talking about? A grow bed is simply a container that is filled up with a growth medium, and generally this is is usually gravel. This means to be cleaned, washed gravel, dust-free gravel. Uh, there's also new medium out there that people uh, use. It's basically little rubber balls that are prepared specifically for this. And there's some other things that people have successfully used, but these are the two most popular. And you fill that grow bed with this medium, and you plant your, your, your plants in there. Of course, if you plant you know, plants in dry gravel, they'll die. So the grow bed allows the water from the system to actually go through that grow bed on a frequency. And I'll talk about, when I talk about how the system functions later, it's not a continuous thing. It's an, it's kind of an on-again, off-again uh, situation. But that grow bed is designed so your plants have a way to access the water from the nutrients in the system. And again, you can use gravel or commercially prepared medium are the two most common ones. Now, how that system functions is something I think a lot of people that have never actually looked into it or have gone and observed an aquaponic system are aware of. I think most people think, well, what we do is we kind of set up kind of like a, a, a continuous man-made stream where this water comes out of the fish tank, flows through the grow bed, and back down into the fish tank. And that is true, but not quite that way. It's not in a continuous cycle. It's generally done based on volume, and you have a holding tank at the top. When that holding tank reaches a capacity where it's full, a predetermined amount of water to flush through the system, basically it opens and it allows the system to flush. That water then flows down into the grow bed, and once all the water's out of the tank, the valve returns to a closed position, and it's being refilled at that point by the water from where your fish are. Slowly, that water filters through your grow beds, matriculates down, and eventually the grow beds are not dry, but they're no longer saturated. They're simply damp. And the process repeats itself over and over and over again. And what it's really like, you have something in your house that works exactly this way, except that the... Uh, the allowing of, of the uh, water to discharge is done manually, and it's called your toilet bowl. If you look at a toilet bowl, it's almost a, a perfect approximation, except where the source water comes from the wall instead of the bowl. It doesn't stay closed. But you have a, a tank on the back that fills up. You have a flapper valve, and then you have a bowl. And when that flapper valve is lifted, the water from the tank flows into the bowl, once it's you know it's 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 discharged, the flapper valve closes and the tank refills. It doesn't sit there and continuously run, right? It only discharges when you need it to get rid of something. In the case of an aquaponics system, it discharges at a regular rate necessary to keep continuous filtration, irrigation, and nutrients going on. So you've got nutrients and irrigation to the plants and filtration from your fish. So that's how that system works. If it stayed saturated, plants like tomatoes and peppers and lettuce and all these strawberries and all these great things that we can grow amazingly well in an aquaponics system wouldn't do very well because their roots would remain constantly soaked. And anybody that's ever planted a, a plant in a pot, 
that had no drainage and didn't create drainage for it and overwatered it and, and ended up with a soaked root system knows what happens then. The plant does not flourish. It does not do well. So that's the basic way a system works. And I think that'll help a lot of people that have been kicking this idea around but haven't really researched it. Wondering, How does this all work? That's all you really need in a system is a grow bed, a holding tank for your fish, a tank that's at a high, you know, to, to make things work functionally well, a tank that's at a higher elevation than both, uh, that drops the water down into your grow bed and then down into your tank, and a pump that, re, you know, reciprocates that. This can be done with an amazingly low amount of power. You can definitely build an aquaponic system that runs 100% on solar energy. The problem is, if that system fails, you can lose all your fish and all your plants. What is more common for people to do is build a system that runs on grid-tied electricity or whatever electricity that. So if it's solar, it's because the house is on solar energy or the house is on wind energy if it's fully green. And then use solar as a backup. I also think, though, it would be very simple for you to put in a system that used 100% solar with a large enough battery backup system that used a fail-safe switch to charge the batteries uh, in an event that the, the batteries reached a certain level of discharge and that the solar, the solar panels were not functioning. So at any point, that, so basically you would use the grid as the backup versus solar as the backup. And that would be much closer to a fully self-sustaining system. It would only need power from the grid during a point of failure. Um, of course, during the winter you would probably need that more. But with a little micro solar and wind, you could run 95% of the time uh, with very low energy draw systems, a fairly sizable aquaponic system. So that's uh, one of the reasons today that I'm going to give you. I think this is a great survival tool as far as being self-sufficient, self-reliant, being able to grow your own protein here. Um, before I get into the basic types of systems, sizes of systems, things like that, let me give you some of the reasons that I think this is such a great thing and people should consider it. One is the amount of vegetables that you can grow off a relatively small aquaponic system is amazing. Uh, the speed of growth, the health of the plants, uh, the freshness of them, all of those things are magnified in a good aquaponic system. Uh, I think that most of these systems, if not all, belong in a greenhouse. I'll talk about that a bit later, but I think your greenhouse should be convertible to, let's call it a screenhouse in the uh, summer so that you don't overheat in there. But that keeps your pests down. If you do a concrete floor with a structure around it screened in, you have the potential to keep your pest count way, 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 way down. And, and that's just a great uh, thing for your system as a whole. So you can grow more vegetables in less space with less disruption by pests, and you can grow them faster and get greater yield. So there's a big reason for aquaponics, and I think most people, if you put in a, a pretty decent-sized system, could replace the majority of your annual gardening with your aquaponics system. Not all, but, but a lot of it, especially for certain things. I also think it'll let you grow things that are tough to grow in the summer in the summer. Things like arugula and spinach uh, and lettuces. If you have a good, well-ventilated, screened-in uh, greenhouse with a little bit of solar screening there, so you're, you're, you're knocking down the sun in the summertime a little bit so that it's not quite as intense, and you're growing a plant in a constantly recirculating water supply, it's going to have a propensity to deal with heat better. All right, So that's another reason. Conversely, in the wintertime, when you, you close your greenhouse fully in, and I think custom building a greenhouse is the way to do this easiest, and uh, you're locking the heat in, if you have, let's say, a 900-gallon system in there, and that 900-gallon system in that greenhouse is sucking up solar energy all day long in your wintertime, and that water's at a certain temperature. It now acts as a heat sink, and it takes a tremendous amount of that thermal radiation in. During your evenings, your greenhouse is going to be much warmer. And if you do something like run an active compost pile inside that greenhouse, uh, along with the aquaponic system, you're going to have the ability to keep the water temperature and the air temperature in there much higher than a pure uh, greenhouse system. Next is you're producing meat that people don't get attached to. Um, when you have a tank full of 300 fish and they all look the same 
and they don't really have any personality, and they all just kind of swim in circles. There's a lot of people that would have a problem lopping the head off a chicken or a fryer rabbit or what have you that are not going to have a problem with doing it to a fish. You take a fish, you take a net, out, fillet knife, done. And I think that that's going to be an easier psychological leap. So a lot of people that otherwise would not produce their own protein will produce their own protein uh, with an aquaponics system. Next is ease of cleaning. I can teach you to fillet a fish in about a minute. And especially fish like tilapia. Very, very easy to fillet. A good electric fillet knife. And you can get a 12-volt DC one that plugs right into your solar system that runs your whole system and still be 100% self-sufficient with it. Or you can use, you know, I actually prefer to fillet with a standard fillet knife unless I'm doing more than about a dozen uh, fish. Two dozen fillets or more, I'm going to want to switch to the electric fillet knife. Otherwise, I, I, I just don't have time to get it out and deal with it. It's harder to clean. Get the sharpening steel out in the fillet knife, and, and I'm pretty quick. It might take me... Uh, basically twice as long, but it's still not that much time. But I'm going to clean four or five fish, let's say, coming back from the lake for dinner tonight. Regular fillet knife and done. So easy to easy to process. Uh, so that's another great thing about the fish output. Another thing is the amount of waste produced. If you take a rabbit and skin a rabbit, unless you're going to feed the waste to dogs or something like that, it's quite a bit of waste. It's not really good for composting. you got to get rid of it. Processing it is kind of a chore. I can actually process a rabbit very, very quickly, but for a lot of people, it's going to be tough, and you, you deal with a lot more uh, bleeding and things like that. Tilapia, or any other fish for that matter, that you're filleting, if you have a large enough size piece of property where you can dig, let's call it a pit, uh, and, 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 you know, put some protection around that so nobody falls into it or anything. And every time you fillet, let's say, a half a dozen or a dozen fish, you take the carcasses down to that pit and cover them with three to four inches of soil. Uh, by the time that pit's full and you make a new one and do that maybe two or three times, you can go back to the first pit and you have wonderful compost. Unlike a lot of other meat products, fish products break down very well for composting. Some of it could also be dumped into a system uh, for cultivating black soldier fly larvae. Because unlike a typical compost bin, black soldier fly larvae will, will take care of all of your uh, meat waste. And with a good system, black soldier fly larvae are self uh, harvesting. Basically, you have a system with a small ledge on the inside at a certain angle with a hole and a little can. And when the larvae are ready to pupate, they'll climb up that thing and fall into the can. And they can be fed to your tilapia. They can be fed to uh, chickens. Uh, they can be frozen for future use and fed to your tilapia. So all of the, or, or any other fish that you're growing, all of these are ways that the system is self-sufficient, self-sustaining, and highly usable. And I'll give you some more of that. But before I do, I want to talk about uh, this, you know, building systems and, and, and how big uh, a system is, and, you know, kind of classifications. We have what we call microsystems, and to me a microsystem, and this is not a hard, fast rule that I know of. This is kind of my own rule, and you're welcome to differ with it, but I consider a microsystem anything up to about 75 gallons. Standard fish aquarium sizes. And a lot of people build these little microsystems. They might even do it with a 10-gallon tank and grow a few things of lettuce under a grow light, sitting on a windowsill or a table inside their home. And I think it's a great way to learn how the system works, to build a scale model, so to speak, and uh, to, to get your, your feet wet. It's also potentially a breeder tank, especially if you go with something like a 75-gallon tank and uh, you take that 75-gallon tank and maybe put a, a divider in it and create it into two sections and you have a couple groups of breeding uh, fish in there. So your indoor aquaponics system could be growing a little bit of lettuce and things like that, which can even be, a if you're growing tilapia, fed back to the more on that in a bit, uh, producing your fry, moving your fry out to your grow-out system. The other thing you could do with that is if you don't want your tilapia breeding all the time, you can kind of cordon off your males when you want to, but I believe there can be some breeding disruption with that. Some of you guys that have expert knowledge on this help me out there. Because I've seen people that basically they have a breeding group and they'll have a male and a couple female tilapias in a tank together. Uh, and they'll then uh, harvest fry that way. Uh, more on tilapia in a bit. But small, let's call it 10 to 75 gallons. I mean, micro, 10 to 75 gallons. Small, I'm going to say up to about a 150-gallon system. And you're still at the, the, the size of a system where there's commercially available 150-gallon fish tanks. 
This is still a system that could exist in your house, but due to some odor issues when you get to that large of a system and all, you may not want it. There's kind of a fishy smell, uh, at least to me, on systems of this size and larger. Uh, these are also good systems if you have a greenhouse and you're kind of moving to aquaponics in that greenhouse, it's just kind of a first-level system, uh, you know, maybe going out and getting something like a couple 75-gallon uh, water tanks for livestock and putting hooking them up together and making one a grow bed or maybe three of them making two a grow bed and one uh, your fish tank and only occupying a part of your greenhouse. Or if you have a smaller greenhouse, these are good systems for that. Medium, I think, are the systems that are really optimum If you want serious output of fish and vegetables, and you want that in a you know a backyard scenario, these are systems up to let's call seven eight hundred gallon systems, and they actually take more space than you would think at that size. And I'll explain that here in a second when I talk about row bed to tank ratio. That's a very important thing. But then let's just real quick define a large system. If a medium system's up to 800 gallons, then I'm saying large systems are over 800 gallons. And I consider a system large when it takes on the potential for some level of commercial uh, benefit. And I think with a 800-gallon system, you move into that. Now, people would say you can produce enough with a smaller system to sell some. And you can, but if you want a system large enough to have multiple groups so you're bringing harvest in continuously, maybe three or four times a year of mature fish, you're going to need to step up to a larger system. Before we talk about choosing fish now, let's chat a little bit about what I just taught, what kind of bomb I dropped on you there, ratios, because that may be something that sounds confusing. Uh, ratio is simply put, is a square feet of growing area relative to the gallons of water that you have fish in. And these things change over time. But initially you want to do a one-to-one -one ratio as you're bringing your fish population up slowly, getting enough nutrient in the water to start supporting growth. And you add your fish, and then a little bit down the road, you start adding plants, and you slowly bring the population up until you get a balanced system. And then you kind of have a cycle that you're working through. But let's think about what this means for the size of our system. With a one-to-one -one ratio, if I put in a 500-gallon system, then I need about 500 square feet of growing area. Not 500 gallons of growing medium, but 500 square feet surface area. So what that would mean is a 500-gallon system might, you know, two 500-gallon tanks may take up a relatively, or a two 250-gallon tanks might take up a relatively small area, and I'm going to need another tank up top to be my reserve tank that discharges through my system, but then I'm going to need 500 square feet of growing area and a fully functioning, fully operating um, system that's running at, you know, it, it's, it, it's optimum can go as high as a 4 to 1 ratio. So what that means is my 500, you know, gallon system run properly could support up to 2,000 square feet of growing area. And depending on the fish and what type they are and how much waste they're pr producing, that might be too much. Uh, it might be trying to ask for too much out of that nutrient load. But most systems are at least going to get you eventually, uh, if you run them right, to at least a 2 to 1 ratio. So you're still looking at a thousand square feet. So think about a 500 gallon system now is going to produce about a thousand square feet of growing area. And you'll realize why you don't see people cycling lake water through an aquaponic system. Why not just put in a 10,000 gallon stock tank, you know, in the ground and then pump that water into your greenhouse and let your fish grow in there? Because you'll never get the ratio right. That's one of your limiting factors. So a minimum ratio of one to one. Now, I want you to think about this. My square foot garden raised beds. Uh, I don't really run them as square feet anymore. I run them just as raised beds, and I do some interplanting and things like that. But my raised bed system is, uh, is what, six or seven? It's seven um, beds, each bed with uh, 32 square feet, uh, 36 square feet. So seven uh, times 36 And we get what? Roughly 250 square feet, 252 square feet. And out of that 252 square feet, I produce really more than we need. Um, 
not if we're preserving for year round. I'd like more production than I have. But during, you know, the summer, there's times where like, man, if we're going away, I got to give away some stuff because I don't have time to preserve it. So with a 500 gallon system, even with a one to one ratio, you're doubling the surface area that, that, you know, a small suburban garden takes up. So you need the space for that. And if you're going to do this inside a greenhouse or a screened in area in, in the uh, summertime, uh, so that the heat doesn't get too high, you got to think about the fact, well, now I've got to put in for a 500 gallon system roughly a thousand square feet. Now, let's talk about some ways to mitigate that. One is that we can stack our grow beds. So we can use vertical spacing with our grow beds. So I can take grow beds that go around the circumference and then elevate it above them a second series of grow beds. So I can double up on my space or even in some systems I've seen triple up on my space. I've seen people do things like use large PVC pipe with holes cut in as their grow beds and put those into multiple stages, three, four, five high. So there's ways to mitigate this. But you're going to need at least that one-to-one -one ratio. So all of a sudden, the thought that, you know, maybe I can just go out and buy three 300-gallon stock tanks and have a 900-gallon system up and running pretty quickly, you're going to have to look at, well, now you're going to need uh, at least 900 square feet. And with a functioning system, somewhere between 1,800 and 3,600 square feet of grow bed to make that 900 square feet function. Here's the good news. You can grow an awful lot of fish in four to five hundred gallons of water, especially if you do smart things with your system, like create staging. So let's say that you created a system with uh, multiple tanks, and one was a hundred gallons, and one was two hundred gallons, and one was three hundred gallons, and now we have five hundred gallons of system. So we need somewhere between, you know, 500 square feet of grow bed starting out, but we need to move up into the thousand or greater square feet area. But we can also have, uh, small fish packed at a greater fish per gallon density in our small tank, medium fish in our medium tank, and larger fish in our large tank. And as our large fish are harvested, we can move fish from the medium tank forward, from the small tank forward, and bring new fry that have been grown out enough to go into the system into our small tank. So there's a lot of scalability here, but I don't want people that maybe haven't researched this to already have in their head, I'm going to be having this like 2,000-gallon system. Well, a 2,000-gallon system, you're going to need 4,000 to 8,000 square feet of grow bed area. That's a huge system. And let's, let's chat about why I think you really should have a, a greenhouse um, as part of your system. One is it's going to mitigate a lot of your pest issues. And two, it's uh, going to make your operations sustainable year-round, especially in the more temperate climates. And those are the two big ones. And it's definitely a big part. Now, there are some other options. There are some other options better than having a massive greenhouse. There's no reason you couldn't build a system that scales with the season. You do your heaviest growing with your largest amount of fish uh, during a period of time throughout your summer months when plants are easily grown outside. And as you move into winter... Uh, you do a bulk harvest, you scale, you drain some of your tank system, and you scale back to a smaller system and run that fully contained within your greenhouse. There's options, and it's limited only by your creativity. What I'm giving you today isn't necessarily tab A and slot B, step-by-step uh, -step instructions, but ways to think about this so you can design your own system. Let's talk a little bit about choosing fish. There's certain things that I believe, after my research, that fish need to be to be good candidates for uh, an aquaponic system. The first one is I want something that grows rapidly. I don't want something that's going to take two years to grow to maturity. It's too long, so I need single season from, it, from at minimum fingerling To, to table size, and I would prefer fry to table size, but there's not a lot of things that will do that for me, but there are some. I want them to be good eating. I don't want to do all this work, spend all this money, put a system in like this, and have a fish that's like, ah, oh, it's okay, right? I want something that's like, I'm looking forward to eating it. I want them to be an easy fish to prepare. Uh, most fish are, but some are easier than others. Let's say if we had a uh, very large uh, tilapia or 
uh, bass of some sort or even very large sunfish, all of those are easier to fillet and prepare than something like catfish. Catfish aren't that bad, but there's more waste on their overall uh, pound, the size of their head, and that bony head is, is large. They're slimy. They're a little bit more work. So I have nothing against catfish. Love to fish for them. Love to eat them. But they'll kind of, just on that one alone, go back to other species. Um, the next one is they need to take commercial feed easily. Because even if I'm providing a lot of their, their food, I'm probably going to have to rely on some commercial feed. So I want something that, that doesn't have a problem eating pelletized feed. I want something that's easy to get a resupply of, either breeding my own uh, or I can phone somebody up and it's not hard to get, you know, channel cats, I just kind of dissed them a little bit, but if I want... 500 channel cat fingerlings, they're easy to acquire and they're quite affordable and there's plenty of places to acquire them from. Um, if I was in a shit at the fan situation, uh, I am even in a situation where I could look at going out and harvesting small fish from my native environment, put them into my system and grow them out. That is highly not recommended because of potential to bring in pathogens and you don't know where the fish came from and things like that. But Again, somebody had to start somewhere. The last one, though, and probably to me, if you want to be fully self-sufficient, the most important is easy to breed. And to me, that's where tilapia really start to shine. Because tilapia are simple to breed, and they're simple to breed where you get ratios that are either mostly or all male. I'm not going to give the scientific names of the species or even the common names of the species. I'm just going to tell you there are certain combinations if I breed one or two different varieties of male tilapia with one or two different varieties of female tilapia, and I'm sure of the species when I start because this doesn't work with every interspecies. What I end up with is offspring that are almost all, and in some cases, 100% male. Now, why would I want to do that? Do I have anything against females? Absolutely not. But here's the thing. When I'm putting these tilapia into a tank and I want them as a food source. I don't want them breeding in the tank. A tilapia breeds so easily, they'll breed in the tank. I also don't want them sending their energy to breeding. I want them putting their energy into growth. All right? So if I'm going to do that, then I need either all females or all males, and it just so happens the hybrid breeding produces all males. So it's going to give me quicker growth. The other thing is the tilapia are a cichlid. Uh, and a cichlid is a species of fish that can be quite aggressive at times with other members of its own species. And this is specifically true as pairs begin to pair up. So as pairs begin to pair up for breeding inside your, your growth tanks, uh, you have them then fighting with each other, and now they're expending energy on breeding and fighting, and they're also harming each other, and they're stressed, so they grow slower. So all of these things are negative if you want to grow them out. Now, what do commercial operations generally do? They use chemicals to sterilize them. So while they're still fried, they expose them to a certain chemical, and that chemical basically sterilizes them, and they get the same result. Well, I don't want chemical sterilization of my fish. So this is another reason to grow your own. But with just proper breeding, and you, again, you could have a 75-gallon tank with a couple pair of breeding tilapia split off inside it with a mini aquaponic system in your home or just running through a normal system or you know a, a couple 50-gallon tanks set up in your aquaponic system closed off for your breeders. There's you know any number of ways to do this. Key with tilapia is in the more temperate climates in the United States, even with a greenhouse, you're going to probably have to bring in some alternative heating source because if the water uh, declines too much, uh, the, as a tropical fish, they'll die. Optimum temperature for tilapia is in the mid-80s. 82, 86, anywhere in there, beautiful temperature for them. As the temperature goes down into the 70s and 60s, their growth rate slows. Again, this is part of you know being able to run a system winter and summer with some portion outside in the summer, closing it up in the winter and going to less, lower scale production. Less growth, less eating, less waste, so you can scale back on your ratio a little bit. Um, but if water goes below 50 degrees, they're dead. So you ne you're going to need to be able to keep your water temperature sufficient, not just above freezing, because you don't want your system freezing up, but you're going to have to keep it above. You want to probably keep water at minimum in the 60s. So you might have to bring in some tank heating, which will also radiate heat out uh, into your, your greenhouse system as well. But 
the further north you are, the more difficult this is going to be, and the more if you want to run a you know a year-round operation uh, and a continuous operation, the more supplemental heating you may have to bring in. Now, there's other creative ways to make heat, right? We could do something like rig up a little army field stove and run a little fire each night to to do some radiant heat that would you know continue to heat things. There's all types of ways to do this. It's up to you to figure them out for yourself. But the big thing you need to know about tilapia, one of their weaknesses, unlike a lot of our native fish, such as trout, when that temperature goes too low, uh, they die. And there's even states where tilapia are stocked in large numbers as fry as feeder fish. Uh, in our lakes, in our streams, in our rivers. Now, in Florida, they've gone nuts and mental and taken over some areas, but, you know, there's places in Arkansas where they do this. And they don't worry about, you know, hybrids or sterile or anything because what happens as soon as that lake temperature goes down to about 48 degrees, they float. So they're able to grow rapidly, spread out. They're, they become forage fish for all of the game fish. And then during a freeze, they actually float. I've actually read some articles that people monitor lake temperatures, and when the lake temperature is going to cross that barrier, they go out in boats and just look for them coming up, and they, they you know, net tilapia. I read an article about people doing that in Arkansas. It also opens up another opportunity. You could grow tilapia uh, if you buy large enough uh, fingerlings in the summer and trout in the winter. So, again, it's all about adjusting and adapting to your individual situation. Uh, but what I really like about tilapia is they will happily eat uh, a lot of vegeta vegetation. So in your system, you could be doing things like growing certain lettuces and stuff that are fed back to them. But the real, like, kind of golden, uh, the golden pyramid, so to speak, for the tilapia is duckweed. Duckweed is easy to grow. It grows so fast it actually is invasive. It's high, it's high in protein as uh, commercial food, uh, food pellets. It can be harvested and frozen for later use, and tilapia like to eat it. So a small container growing duckweed can grow all the duckweed you need to feed your tilapia. Now, it probably makes sense to supplement their feed with other things as well, but I have read about systems where people run 100% on duckweed for feeding their tilapia. If you're doing things like using some of the waste and some of your other meat waste and, and some of your other household waste to build black soldier fly uh, containers and then feed, feeding that back, now you're getting a varied diet. And the more varied a diet, to me, for most animals, as long as it's good, clean stuff, the better. So you've grown too much lettuce, you can't use it all, rip some up, throw it in the tank, your tilapia take over from there. You're starting to get more and more close to a closed-loop system at that point, which is a reason I really think... Um, They're probably the best fish for this. They're definitely the most popular fish for this. Um, if I'm doing something like catfish, that's out of the question. Now I've got to get commercial feed. Uh, maybe I can have a worm farm, feed them worms. I can feed them, uh, uh, you know, grow mealyworms. There's all kinds of things that I can do to feed my catfish. But I can't feed them on vegetation alone, which... Even if my system, if I'm using commercial pellets and things like that to get optimum output of it uh, during good times, if I get into a shit-at-the-fan situation where I'm now depending upon it, I can go to a 100% vegetative uh, system and I have a continuous supply of protein. And with a few breeder fish, right, I can continuously um, produce my own fry. Now, what about my breeding pair? Well, at some point they need to be replaced. But if I keep some pairs... Uh, I can always look at, at some point, bringing together uh, matched species and producing new breeder animals or simply replacing them. Uh, the key is that I can grow fish for many years off one group of breeding tilapia. I don't have to replace them very often. So all of these things add up to make tilapia probably one of, if not the best fish, for aquaculture, especially smaller, I mean, uh, aquaponics, especially smaller scale aquaponics. I know, uh, Johnny Max and the Queen at selfsufficienthomestead.com, uh, tried it with crappie and I don't think it worked out the best for them. Uh, they might have been better off with tilapia. I'm not sure really what he's doing with his aquaponics efforts now. That guy's always up to something. Make sure you check out Johnny Max and the Queen. It's at sshomestead.com. Uh, don't get to listen to him as much as I'd like. I had so much to do on my own show, but, uh, they put out a good show. Um, I also want to talk a little bit here about 
preserving and cooking the meat. If we're going to do all this and produce this in excess, and at times we're just going to have to take out, especially if we're doing we're doing this in a place where falls come and the tilapia have to come out, we need to replace them with something that can handle the winter, like trout, we're going to end up with more than we can use. And if we can't sell it or we don't want to sell it, we need to do something with it. The easiest thing, of course, is filleting your fish, uh, vacuum sealing them and throwing them into a deep freezer. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you have a plan for how you're going to keep that deep freezer running if the power goes out. Uh, especially through the winter, that's mitigated. And if you're eating a lot through the winter, by spring as you're introducing new fish, you're probably at a point where you're, you're running out of fish anyway. So as long as you do that, that makes sense. But there are some other methods of preserving fish that are better for shit-hit-the-fan scenarios. Um, you could definitely can fish. And it's not, you know, great to pull canned fish out, roll it in cornmeal and deep fry it. Uh, but it is very good for making things like sauces and fish chowder and things like that. Uh, very, you use it, it's very similar to the way that you would use something like canned salmon. They actually do make uh, tilapia done that way. I've, I've had uh, it done by someone else who gave me a couple uh, jars of it, and I made f basically fish cakes, kind of like a mock crab cake. Uh, and it came out very, very good. So that's a method. Tilapia come out very well smoked. Uh, the first time I saw them filleted, I saw the reddish tints in the meat, and it looked a lot like uh, striped bass or white bass. And um, I've, I've smoked them, and they don't do anywhere near as well as, let's say, trout or salmon or catfish with smoking. Uh, but tilapia smoked come out beautifully. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, so smoking is another method where they could be preserved. They could be salt cured like anything else. I've never done it. I'm not big on uh, salted fish. It's something I think I'm going to learn about doing, though, uh, because it, uh, it has potential for that you know, shit-hit-the-fan scenario. But there's a lot of different ways that fish can be preserved other than freezing. Of course, the best way is to preserve them by eating them uh, and keeping them alive until point of harvest. And if you're lucky enough to live in a place where you can uh, run your operation throughout the year with the assistance of a greenhouse and maybe some supplemental heating, basically there's no reason to preserve your fish. You're simply taking a few out at a time to consume And as some of your fish in your middle-sized tank, let's say, are getting closer, the larger fish in there, moving them in and keeping your whole system going. Uh, and that's probably one of the greatest thing about aquaponics over even, let's say, harvesting fish from the wild. I don't have to kill them until I'm ready to eat them. And that means that I can literally decide tonight... I'd like to grill up four tilapia fillets and some vegetables from the garden, maybe a couple cobs of corn, and I get all my vegetables ready to go, and I get my fillet knife in my board, and I can go out to my system. I can pull two fish out. I can fillet them, and they can be on the grill while, I hate to put it this way, but the carcass is still flipping a little bit. That's as fresh as it gets, and that's a huge advantage with this. Um, again, I want to talk about making use of a waste. There's a lot of things that can be done with the waste. It can be ground and pulverized. Uh, there's no reason it couldn't be used to create some sort of a pet food or even a food product. Uh, fish carcasses can be boiled to make fish broth. Uh, and if that's cooked down and thickened, it can be used as a fish sauce and a lot of oriental cooking. Uh, it definitely has a high nutrient protein value. You probably, if you're running any kind of a sizable operation, don't want to do it with all of your waste, but you might want to do it with some and learn to use it because if we ever do get into a shit-hit-the-fan situation, that's a valuable uh, nutrient that you don't want to just discard. So learning how to use it in good times and using it in moderation is a good way to prepare to use it long-term. Um, definitely for making things like uh, fish stew or fish chowders, uh, it's a great component to have. Uh, I'll give you a simple recipe for fish chowder, and then you can expand this into anything that you want. Go get yourself um, either some, uh, some some fish bones or and head, and you want heads for this. I know it sounds heads, fins, everything, fish uh, waste. And uh, boil that. I don't really have, I can't tell you like this much or whatever, but you want to produce a good, uh, let's say, four quarts of, of, of you know water after you're done with this or broth after you're done with this. Boil it for about 30 minutes with some salt and whatever seasonings you want to add to it. And uh, when you're done with it, strain that through a colander and discard Uh, all the solid products, unless there's any pieces of meat or anything, you want to go ahead and pass through that. That's your fish uh, broth. If you don't want to do that and you want to shortcut it, 
Um, you can use something like clam, clam juice that you can buy in a store to do this with. Combine with that uh, potatoes, celery, uh, corn. Uh, you want to simmer your celery and your potatoes till they're soft and add your corn right at the end and use evaporated milk uh, to thicken this and add your fish, chopped up pieces of fish of, of whatever species you want uh, right at the end until you cook it till it's just done and then add your corn last as kind of a, uh, a sweetener. So you get a saltiness from the fish broth and from the fish And then you get a sweetness from the corn and the celery, and then the potatoes balance out, you know, a full meal. You can do this with something like canned salmon to give it a try. Uh, and it's all about how much broth you need based on how much meat. One can of uh, salmon, you could probably go out and get yourself one bottle of clam juice and use water and uh, milk to make up the difference and use that basic recipe. But once you learn how to do that, then it starts to open up new things for you and what you would do with what you would otherwise consider waste, whether it comes from your aquaponics system or from the lake. You start to realize that those carcasses aren't 100% waste. You probably will have more of that than you need, though. So again, my preferred method of dealing with this is we dig a small pit. Um, every time we have fish, we dump them in there, cover it by about four inches of dirt. Uh, maybe that pit is about a foot and a half deep when we start out. And uh, maybe if we're doing a lot of fishing or a lot of calling out of an aquaponics system, uh, the next, you know, we dig back up uh, what we've buried a couple days ago and we do two or three before we go to the next layer. And we basically make fish dirt lasagna. We can throw other organic matter in there like leaves and what have you. And we want to do this with, you know, we don't want to pack this down ever. And eventually that hole will be full. And we go to the next hole. And we go to the next hole. By the time we fill the third hole, we've probably got a year pass at this point, we can go back and extract the dirt out of the first pit and, and bring in some dirt from somewhere else to, fill, to backfill with our next uh, process. We're going to have extremely rich organic matter there. Um, it's going to be extremely valuable as fertilizer, used very sparingly, spread out over your entire garden. And you'll have very little odor to contend with at that point, unless you have very, very cold winters. If you do, you might have to run this process for 18 months before you're starting to dig out uh, that pit that was closed. So it goes through two warm periods before it'll happen. But it's something that we used to do. Uh, in fact, I used to be sent off to go catch sunfish. Uh, bluegill, perch, whatever you want to call them, and just bring back tons of them. My grandfather would do this with them, uh, and basically it would be all done at once instead of over time. So I'd bring back, you know, a, a, a burlap sack full of, of bluegills, and we'd just throw them into the pit, cover them with dirt, throw some more, cover them with dirt, and basically the whole thing, little tiny. I mean, some of you guys that are environmentalists are going, oh, God, you're just, I mean, If you go to these small ponds and streams and stuff where I used to fish for these things, they were so overpopulated, you were doing the, the, the system of failure to, uh, a favor to remove some of them. But that's where I picked up that, that uh, particular method, and I know that it does work very well. The last thing I want to talk about is considering small-scale and commercial barter operations. Um, on the commercial side, I think it's really easy to look at this and go, well, holy crap, I could produce X pounds of fish a year. And uh, if I do that, I could keep you know Y pounds for myself and sell the rest off to markets, and I could have all this produce in a thousand square feet and an aquaponics system of growing. God, I could produce so much produce, and I could sell that. And I'm a small scale farmer. Maybe I could do a CSA, and it's all great, and you can. But I want to explain one thing to you about growing food in this kind of small scale model. Where it's not big enough that you can just load, you know, call a truck in to haul off uh, a bunch of grain and take it down to uh, a, a place where they pay market price for it. You're talking about fresh produce that's coming in often. You have to be able to market. You have to be able to find a place to sell all of this stuff before it's available. You have to have a place for it to go. If you don't do that, what you'll end up with is a lot of surplus you can't use. So it's better with these systems to start a little bit small and look at how much, if I produce, if I got optimum out of the system, could I use it all? And if the answer is no, scale back a little bit until the answer is yes. Start with a system of that size or smaller. Uh, you know, Start with a system where you, know, you could easily use it all. Start with a system that maybe is going to produce 10 to 20% of what you actually eat. If you do that, and you know, nobody wants, even tilapia are great, catfish are great, trout are great, no one wants to eat it every day. 
Um, nobody wants to eat tomatoes every day. Nobody wants to eat peppers every single day. There's going to be variation in your diet. So start small. And if you get really good at it, it's easy to expand the system once it's in place. Once you put all the money into it, it's hard to justify scaling it down. So you can start with a couple hundred gallons and do an awful lot. I do think if you want any meaningful production, you are looking at two to three hundred gallons as far as a system size. Uh, and multiple tanks so that you can move fish and have different harvests of fish coming in, whether it's different species so that your, you know, your trout are going into the big tank, uh, in, in, in the fall as the temperatures are dropping, uh, or your, your tilapia are being harvested. However, or it's just you're growing tilapia and we have three or four sizes of tilapia at any one time, having multiple tanks I think is a huge advantage over trying to just have one big tank. Um, With that said, I think that's as much as I can do on this. Again, I know I probably screwed some things up today, uh, I, but my point here wasn't for this to be a lecture on aquaponics. It was to get you thinking about all the options, all the great things about it, kind of stir your hunger to learn more. Because here's the reality with aquaponics. I could have given you everything perfectly right. I could have taken all of my research material and put down uh, very intensive notes instead of just the bullet points that are on the site that I followed for this and made sure all my numbers were right. I could have gave you metrics. I could have gave you exact ways to calculate your ratios. I could have gave you number, you know, how big, how many fish per gallon, uh, growth rates. I could have gave you all of these specifics and you would never remember them anyway, even if I was 100% right. The only way you're going to be able to actually do this is to try it is to get started with. It's something I'm looking very forward to in the spring of next year after our move. Uh, I've got kind of my system mapped out. I hope it works out. If it doesn't, I'll learn from it. And I think that's the other thing to go into this with, is an understanding that there's a very good chance that you'll have big failures in your first system, and it's okay. You know, uh, I remember this girl that I was good friends with named Valerie that was big into, you know, reptiles and fish and she worked in pet stores and uh, you know when somebody lost fish and this is more pet fish you know like a, a tropical tank uh, than an aquaponic system her response was fish die that's what they do you know fish are not immortal creatures and in any system where you're trying to keep them if you do enough things wrong you'll kill them and if you're not willing to kill a few to learn what you're doing don't do it they're just fish You know, it's it, you know if you're someone that values all life and, and you don't kill anything and you're 100% vegan, you're probably not doing this anyway. But I can understand your, your your trepidation there. But again, fish die. It's what they do, and and that's their ultimate destiny anyway. And it's a shame if they've not gotten large enough for the table and they die and you can't use them. But if you want to do anything. You have to be willing to make some mistakes along the way. And from everyone I've talked to that's, that's doing aquaponics successfully today, every single one of them said, I made mistakes early on, here's what happened, here's how you can avoid it, and guess what? You're going to screw up and you're going to have problems, and your water's going to get murky, and your plants aren't going to thrive, and you're, you're going to have to keep screwing with it, and it might take you a year to really get that system balanced, but once it's up and running, it gets easy. But you have to be willing to go through that period of time first. Don't plan on a lot of harvest your first year. You might get it. One guy I talked to said, man, my first year was great. I still had all kinds of problems, but I still got way more vegetables than I can use. I actually decided I wanted a smaller system than I started out with. But because it was already there, I kept using it. But I changed some things on my ratios of fish to plants and um, running a little bit less water through it in my times and all. But he said, I still had problems, but don't count on it. Don't bet on it being that way. Understand that just like gardening, You know, there's a learning curve and there's things that are specific to you that won't be specific to somebody just a few hundred miles away based on your microclimate, based on the solar exposure of the area that you're going to use, based on the water that you start out with. There's all types of things that are going to change that and based on how much effort you put in, how much work you put in, uh, how much time you put in. Uh, how big a system or how small a system you initially build, how well you follow recommended guidelines. You know, if you get too excited and put too much in too fast, that's going to create problems for you down the road. And you can still do everything by the book and still have a problem. But it's okay. Adapt, adjust, learn, and overcome. Really what you, you have is there's only two big things that can go wrong. You have too, too little nutrients for your plants or you have too much nutrients. So you either need to scale back on your fish or increase your plants or both, or you need to increase your fish or scale back on your plants. 
Those are the only two big variables in the system as long as you have everything else growing right and you have the ratios established. So with that, I'll go ahead and sign off. And those of you that have been doing this for a while, that are aquaponics pros, and you want to weigh in and say, Jack, you screwed this up today. Again, you won't hurt my feelings. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, pull this episode up, uh, go to the comments section and enlighten me. I'm a student here. I'm learning just like you. Uh, I'm also going to tell you, I didn't talk a lot about what I'm going to do, but I'm going to put a great deal of resources in the show notes today as far as links. Uh, there is a great DVD called Aquaponics Made Easy out of a guy out of Australia. Wonderful, uh, wonderful DVD. I'll put a link to that. Some good websites. The best forum that I know of on aquaponics, I'll put a link to that. So make sure you check the show notes out to learn more today. And remember, if you're a member Support Brigade member, the ebook Aquaponics the Synoptoman Way is available for free. And I'll put a link to where you can purchase it if you'd like to purchase it. I think it sells for like $18 or $19 on Keith's website. So if you don't want to be a Members Brigade member, but you want to purchase that item, I'll give you a link to where you can purchase it. With that, I will sign off. Do consider aquaponics. It's something that you have planned in your future. The timing's not always right. I'm a perfect example of that. Getting ready to move, it's not the time to do this. I am a very lucky man with a very wise wife. Um, but it is a plan. It is part of my future. It's something I've educated myself on. I think that it is probably one of the biggest things we can do to create independence for ourselves. We can grow a lot of food, but protein's a struggle. Protein is tough. And even with things like chickens and rabbits, it's tough to do in a fully self-sufficient manner. Generally, commercial feed has to be part of the equation. Even if it's not year-round, even if you're only growing, let's say, two or 300 pounds of fish, that's a lot of fish, by the way, folks, a year, you can do something like tilapia in a closed-loop system. It can be done. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares